everybody. Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast with a very, very special guest. Our friend Sky is joining us again from the great city of Chicago and the great state of Illinois. Sky, hello. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me back on. Oh, my goodness, Sky. Sky uh, had me on his show, something called The Holy Post. And um, and that was absolutely a blast. And so, because some stuff came out this week, I thought, who better to talk with than my friend Sky, who fills so many ethnic categories that <laughs> I, you you can be you can literally be an expert on almost anything. Right, Sammy Davis Jr. of evangelicalism. Yes, it's perfect. So, um, mm-hmm. so Sky. Uh, just give us a real quick rundown of where you're at and what you're doing, and then we'll we'll hop in. Okay. Uh, well, I live in Wheaton, right near Wheaton College, if people are familiar with that. Is that near Chicago? It is. It's in the burbs of Chicago. Okay. Uh, so I was, kind of I was right, but not specific. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. We're, we're Chicagoans. But, but, it's kind um, of like, but it's kind of like when you live in California, everyone assumes you live in LA. Mm-hmm. Even though if you live in Southern California, like there are very clear distinctions between different places around LA, but it's still LA to everybody else. Right. No, this is, I'm definitely in the Metro Chicago area. Like I can, I can jump on a train about a quarter mile from my house and be downtown Chicago in 28 minutes. So it's, you know, that's, that's kind of where I am. That's fair. But Wheaton, Uh, yeah, Wheaton college. That's right. Um, so I'm an ordained pastor, even though I don't serve on a, a pastoral team anymore at my church. Nice. And for many years, I was an editor and executive at Christianity Today Ooh. magazine yep. and leadership. Journal. Hold on. Could you explain for the younger audience what magazines are? Just real quick. I know. There's there's these papers that are stapled together. <laughs> they're, they're, like, they're like small, thin paperback books. Yes. With pictures. With lots of pictures. Right. Or another way to put it is it's a website that doesn't scroll down that you have to flip pages. That's <laughs> you flip horizontally, not were. vertically. It's shocking. Right. Okay. It is. Ancient technology. What did you, and what did you do for them exactly? You were an editor? Yeah. Well, it's kind of what didn't I do okay. for them. Um, I had different roles over the years. I actually left CT three times and kind of get, kept getting pulled back in. <laughs> so I started as an uh, associate editor at Leadership Journal, which is their magazine for pastors yep, and church leaders. I read that one. And then I left, and I came back to managing editor of Leadership Journal, and then I left. And then I came back as the executive editor of Leadership Journal and eventually got into um, working directly for the CEO and president and launching new projects for CT and did a project with Andy Crouch called This Is Our City. I did a lot mm. of events and speaking for them, um, reporting new um, joint venture projects with other ministries and organizations. So just, I, I kind of floated around and got got my hands into all kinds of stuff. But left there in 2015 and have been independent since then. Yeah. So I'm doing a lot of writing, books. Uh, I have a daily devotional. Yep. That's become a kind of significant part of my work. Absolutely. With God with God daily. Yeah. I've done this podcast with Phil Vischer for years now that, uh, started as just a ridiculous hobby and now has become a bit more, uh, intense called the Holy post. And I travel and speak and consult and kind of just get involved in whatever people ask me to get involved in. So, so if, if I had to sum up in a very cheesy way, your career choice, it is thought leader. (laughs) <laughs> correct I, yeah yeah you are a thought leader it's bad i try to be 
but I, you know, I think honestly, Mike, a little bit like you, I, I increasingly am feeling homeless. Mm. Like even, even CT, which was started by Billy Graham back in the 1950s. Um, it, it kind of heralded itself as, as the, the journal of evangelical conscience and things like that. And, yeah. And like, I don't feel like there is an evangelicalism anymore. It's been so fractured into so many different parts. Yeah. And when you get around the country, you go, well, which, which tribe exactly do I belong to or do I speak for, or do I represent? And I don't really feel at home in any of them. So I'll be a um, part of your tribe. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Midwestern bald guys. That's right. Yes. That's a good tribe. So, so because evangelicalism is so fragmented, I'm very grateful for people who publish statements telling us where the lines are. So I was super confused about sexuality and then the Nashville statement came out and I thought, okay, good. This is, this clarifies the Bible for me in really helpful ways. And then I was super confused about racism and, um, and social justice. And thankfully we have a new statement out sky, the, uh, the, and, and it's, and it's the, it's not, statement on the gospel and social justice it's the statement <laughs> which is awesome yeah. uh, the like there there won't be any others and there shouldn't need to be any others this is the statement my friend you know uh, these, i i consider these statements a, a lot like dogs marking their territory yeah do you think do you see them as in any way shape or form effective no well here's the here's the thing i mean i've as I've just explained from my career, I've been in the media world, the, the Christian media world for quite a while. And I suspect, this is so cynical, but I suspect that the real motive behind statements like these over the last couple of years has been to, uh, to capture thousands of people's email addresses and contact info. <laughs> really i'm not joking i'm not joking because when, awesome. if you if you become a signer on one of these statements you have to give them your email and contact information and that goes into their list which then they use for marketing they can sell to other advertisers it becomes a revenue producing tool nice and and, and you and you have a, uh, a sociographic or demographic or psychographic profile of the person because they signed the statement. Yes. You, you know what kind of, of resources they want. You know what kind of denomination they're a part of. You yeah. know how to market to them. So to be totally cynical about this, I don't think these statements are moving the football at all as far as discipleship or theological rootedness or right. advancement of the mission of the gospel. It's advancing the list, the mailing list of these <laughs> institutions that are behind them. That's really what I think is going on. <laughs> Oh, that is the most cynical take I've heard, and I love it. Absolutely. Then, then we need to have a statement, Sky. Um, the the Midwestern bald um, <laughs> heteronormative men statement on social justice and race. How about that? I, if you can pull it off and you get a list, <laughs> someone someone will want to sell something to that group of men. Nice. I have I have a list. Well, no, I don't want to. I don't. Okay, we can't make it men then. So maybe we can include bald women. I suppose we could. And bald Midwestern women. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm, I think that is awesome. Um, okay, well that, yeah, I, I have just as nefarious a take on what sits behind these things, but not nearly as cynical or monetized. <laughs> I'm just, I, I'm convinced these are the death throes of a way of doing Christianity 
that um, it, it, for many of us is thankfully being you know put out to pasture. Um, and so the Nashville statement, this statement, the way that the way that some of these folks are uh, interacting with culture and the assumptions made, and even in issuing a statement like this, I just think that whole thing is gone in 10 to 20 years. That whole thing, the, the cozying up to Trump, the, the wedding of evangelical um, uh, theology with Republican politics. I mean, that whole, like the boundary marking, the territory marking that's mm-hmm. happening. I think all of that is going to die. And, um, and I just think they're fearful. Well, As I the, think it, it's important to note that your interpretation and mine are not mutually exclusive. Fair point. <laughs> they go together. So I don't disagree with you at all. It, it, see, if we can monetize discontent and fear, that's the way to go, right? Isn't that, that the way you raise money anyway? Yes, that's exactly what most political campaigns and, and media outlets do now. I mean, the, whether it's on the right or the left, you look at MSNBC or Fox News, they're trying to make people afraid and you know, get eyeballs to watch commercials to monetize an audience through fear and anger. And I don't think that's any less true in many ministries or professed ministries or Christian media outlets that are trying to rile people up and get them anxious about something. And and for this audience behind the gospel and social justice statement, whatever it's called, the same thing. It's, yeah. it, it makes people worried and it gets them riled up. Uh, you know, if you're if you're unsure what we're talking about, there there's a guy, a fellow named John MacArthur, who is well known in Southern California and, and even more than that. But he's he's an uh, aging uh, baby boomer, right? He's a boomer, mm-hmm. um, and he is you know one of the before they were Christian celebrities. Um, they were Christian celebrities, but the, but these were celebrities because their tapes were distributed, their sermons were distributed, their, their sermons were turned into books and, you know, they were so, so guys like Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur. I mean, these were, these were in the eighties, like, like deeply held authorities on, uh, on the Bible and Christianity. And so MacArthur started something called the Master's uh, Seminary. He still has a church. He has a ministry called Grace to You, which is one of the least gracious things uh, that's out there um, <laughs> if you pay close attention to it. But they issued a statement on social justice and the gospel. And so, so I reached out to Sky and said, Sky, with a name like Sky, you can talk about anything and it's going to be okay. <laughs> and because it's ethnically and even uh, gender ambiguous. Yes. 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 You could be transitioning for all I know. And I'd never, I couldn't be able to tell. I mean, I don't know. Um, And so, so if you're not familiar with it, you can just type in the statement on social justice and the gospel. And much like the Nashville statement, it is a series of affirmations and denials that start um, with topics like scripture, Imago Dei, justice, God's law, sin, gospel, and then move, uh, interestingly enough, to sexuality and marriage and women's roles in the home. <laughs> Amazing how that happens. Right. Uh, and then we get to race, ethnicity, and it's just, it, it, the, and as always, as always, you know, we affirm what Paul says, test everything, hold on to the good. And so, of course, there are some things in here that are true and good and right and and are worthy of proclaiming and worthy of 
of uh, shouting from the rooftops. No question about that. Have you read enough of it to be able to give a general sense of what you think people were trying to accomplish be besides or what they're reacting to? What's the fear that's motivating this? Yeah, I've read through it and it, it would take a long time to parse every statement. I yeah. forget how many different are there articles? And denials yeah, are I think there. there's 14. Yeah, so it's quite long. Um, and it falls along very predictable boundaries. Yes, yes, and, and, and there's nothing. Does. There's nothing remotely surprising in the statement about what it affirms or what it denies. Once it, when, when you understand John MacArthur and some of the other people behind the statement, uh, it, they're not realigning any boundaries on what has been a traditionally white evangelical American point of view. And yeah, so I think they're just trying to, like you said, they're trying to hold a line on a view of American Christianity that has, that's in its death throes. Yeah. So it's very predictable. It, it, but what's the, you know, the, the thing the, the couple of things that very much came out in the way this was framed are um, one identity is a victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, they very much deny that, not that people, they don't deny that people are victimized, but they deny that people are victims. They also deny seemingly that, that it, well, they, they outright say, you know, you're not responsible for anyone else's sin. Yeah, that's a part that jumped out to me really clearly. So uh, to back up a second, yeah. that, for me, when I read this statement, what occurred to me immediately was th- this kind of statement is only possible in America. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much you've traveled overseas or you've engaged with Christians in other parts of the world, but the whole idea that the gospel and social justice are standing in opposition to one another is a uniquely American mm. invention of mm. Christianity. Like you go to other parts of the world and they look at you cross-eyed, like what is wrong with you Americans that you don't understand these things go together? Right. And and on top of that, this individualism of the statement, the idea that... Yes. And, and I understand where they get it from scripture. You know, the person, the soul who sins is the one who shall be punished. Not mm-hmm. You're not punished for the sins of your, your father or ancestors, whatever. Unless those I, go to the like third generation, which is interesting. Yeah, well, and I get... I get that. Like you, you don't, you don't condemn an entire class or group of people for the sin of one, unless your your theology says that all have sinned in Adam, and there's this federal kind of thing, which yeah. is actually in the statement as that well. That is in the statement, yeah. But here's here's the problem with it. I would agree. Like I, I don't think that a a, a current fifty year old white Southern American is in himself guilty of slavery that may have been perpetrated by an ancestor of his 150 years ago. That's true. The problem is when you are the beneficiary of someone else's sin and you don't acknowledge that and you seek no restitution for that, then you are guilty of something. So it'd be like if if my father went and stole uh, a car from someone down the street when I was 16 years old and came home and gave me that car and says, here, son, it's your, it's your car. You're 16. Enjoy it. Right. Am I guilty of stealing the car? No, my father is. But if I know the car is stolen and I do nothing, oh, then, I, then I am also culpable for his crime. And it, you cannot, 
you cannot be a contemporary American and not in some way acknowledge that we all have benefited from crimes that were committed against Native peoples, crimes that were committed against those who were enslaved, crimes against those who were persecuted under Jim Crow. You know, we go on down the list. And did I personally perpetrate any of those crimes? No, but I have absolutely benefited from them. Oh, that's so and, good, Sky. And if, and if we don't acknowledge that, repent of that, and seek to make things right with where it is within our power to do so, then we are guilty of something. And that's what, this, that's what the statement, I think, completely ignores. It's simply saying, well, I didn't do it, and therefore it's unfair for you to expect me right. to, to have any culpability or responsibility yes. for there's it. There's nothing, there's, they, they totally deny the possibility of entire groups of people repenting to other groups of people. Right. Uh, which, which is fascinating because our country wouldn't be as great as it is had our forefathers and mothers actually believed the nonsense in this statement, right? Because, I mean, you're not William Wilberforce and, and, and you think that, well, my Christianity is over here because I'm preaching to souls. My activism against slavery is in another category and not nearly as important or significant. That's mm-hmm. just not, that's just not true. The civil rights movement. I mean, all of that came from faith and obviously not antithetical to it. But, but I think you're, I think you're onto something because I, I, MacArthur was doing a series of blogs prior to this statement. And then he, he was hit some audio leaked out from like a convocation of, um, at where he was talking about this or he took a question about it. And, and he, he is very much going after the way that people are identifying themselves as victims mm-hmm. um, and not owning their own sin um, and, or asking others to own the sin done against them, even though the others didn't do the sin directly. So you've spoken to that. You've spoken to that. I love the car analogy. I think that's really, really good. Um, but, but, and he calls social justice, interestingly, a distraction um, yep. from the gospel, which, oh. <laughs> which see, and, and, and so let's, so I love, all right. So great idea, Scott, let's talk in general about the concept of social justice and justice in the scripture. And then, um, and then there are a couple of specific clauses I kind of want to talk through with you mm-hmm. that are in here. And again, I mean, we're not, there's good stuff here. We have better things to do than, but, but there is no evangelicalism as you as you say, there's, there are these splinter factions and, and my goodness, the, the, the tone deafness, right? So we're watching black people be brutalized on video by police. We're having this incredibly huge cultural me too moment, right? In the church and in all of our institutions, our politics are unbelievably upside down and, and things are being weaponized left and right around racial issues. And so what we're going to do <laughs> is we're going to issue a statement um, that, that, that allows for no nuance, no f- a faithful disagreement, and no ability for people uh, to kind of be in process on these issues mm-hmm. all on race, sexuality, and, uh, and women's roles in the church. And, and it just, it's so, um, I, I don't, you know, I, I just don't yeah. get the, someone, someone needs to be saying to, to these folks, hey, there are better ways to do this. Well, okay, let's back up a second, because I, I think part of what makes a statement like this possible and affirmed by so many leaders is an assumption about the world that I think is entirely unbiblical. Oh, come on. 
and and that it's the sinking ship metaphor. This idea that this world is a sinking ship, it cannot be saved, it is going down, and we are in an emergency, and the only, the only uh, rational thing to do in that scenario is to save as many souls as possible. Right. Right? Yep. Like, you're not going to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. You're, you're not going to uh, you know, make better food in the dining room of the ship. It's not worth it. All you need to do is get people into lifeboats and save them. And that mindset has been prevalent in parts of American Christianity for at least the last 100 to 150 years. Mm -hmm. And I think MacArthur and the people behind the statement are essentially saying, look, our job as Christians is to get souls into heaven, period. And trying to solve social uh, illness, uh, reform unjust systems, uh, pass better laws, seek retribution for past sins, like all that, those things may well be good, but right now they're not important or urgent yeah. because they're, those things don't get people into heaven. Yeah. And I think that is an entirely unbiblical vision of Come on. not only the, not only the mission of the gospel, but also the future of the world. Did but you read, did you read my notes for this episode? Cause I was no. going, I mean, you just stole every bit of thunder. But it's because you and I share a brain. That's it's makes sense. <laughs> well, no. To be honest, you and I share a scripture. Couple we preach we, now. Preach. We do. We share a Bible, and and that for me is again, it's a uniquely American abnormality in Christianity. That this idea, this dualism. It's actually very old. It's it's even rooted in Gnosticism. This view that the soul matters, but the physical world doesn't. Yeah. And it, it came alive again in late 19th century American Christianity and dominated much of 20th century Christianity. And MacArthur and his, his tribe are trying to keep it alive in the 21st century. And if that's the vision you have of the world, then honestly, the statement makes perfect sense. Absolutely. But it, it's, I think, an entirely unbiblical view. And, that, and that's the, the, the biggest issue I have. I mean, Sky, that's so well said, man. The biggest issue I have is how they define the gospel. Mm -hmm. So here is social justice and the gospel. If you unpack what they mean by the gospel, it's very much, it's an individual transaction between myself and my creator based upon the guilt that I have not only in Adam, but that I, as a, I sin because I am a sinner. Um, I am condemned before God. Jesus is put forward in exclusively legal terms to pay the price for my sin so I can have right standing with God and, and eternal life from here on out. That's the gospel. And certainly, Paul uses those images um, and from the borrowing from the Old Testament sacrificial system and temple system. Yes, yes, yes. However, what Jesus preached was was not even close to that. <laughs> and and I know I'm preaching to the choir with you, bro, but it you know, when when you talk about the message of Christ and what the gospel turned out to be, that it turned out to be the announcement of the kingdom. And kingdoms don't just concern themselves with who is the boss in your heart. They concern themselves with all kinds of social ordering. And Jesus was so clear that that part of the gospel was the announcement that the power holders were no longer going to be running the world. And uh, that starts with opening chapters of Mary. It goes straight through the book mm -hmm. of Acts. 
that those who think they're in power are not really. Those who think they're marginalized are actually favored. I mean, it is this great reversal. It is undeniable. It is the restoration of the biblical Old Testament vision of shalom that included, I mean, why did the Old Testament law include policies on economics and poverty and elderly and how you would treat the sick? I mean, it was eminently concerned with social ordering. Let's think about, I, I take it all the way back to Genesis chapter one. Do it. So the word justice, people, you know, it's a it's a boogeyman word for for some folks because of its contemporary political implications. The word that's translated justice throughout the Bible is often also translated as righteousness. They're the same word, right? And nobody would argue that the gospel isn't concerned about righteousness. Right. That that's deeply rooted in our tradition, but we get kind of bent out of shape about this justice where, well, what, what does justice slash righteousness actually mean? Come on. The, the core biblical definition would be the right ordering of relationship. Yep. It's when things are in their proper God-ordained order. And in Genesis 1, that's exactly what you find. It, the, the creation is chaotic. It's disordered. You know, the, the ocean, the sea represents this realm of chaos. The spirit of God hovers over it and begins to create order, separating day from night, land from sea, you know, populating. It's, everything's in proper order, and God says it is good. Mm-hmm. And what you find throughout the Old Testament and then into the New Testament is as sin enters the world, as humanity rebels against God, as these relationships one after another are broken, the relationship between humanity and the Creator, between men and women, between rulers and the people— it goes on and on. You go into the Exodus story of Pharaoh oppressing the Israelites, like all these broken relationships. But when when the presence of God shows up, he restores righteousness. He restores shalom. He restores the right ordering of things. And, he, and that's why he gives Israel the law that says, look, here's how you're to live with one another. Here's how you're to live with me. Here's how you're to live with the people around you. Here's how you live with immigrants and strangers. Yeah. Here's how you live with the poor and the orphan and the widow and put things right. And of course, they failed over and over and over again. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, guess what? It isn't enough to just put these external laws in place. The thing that really needs to be healed is your own heart. You need to be put into proper order, and you need to be brought back into proper order with your maker, with your heavenly father. And that's what the cross is about. I'm going to take away your sin. I'm going to restore that relation. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. This is all justice and righteousness. It's putting the world back into order. And if, if we think that we can have a right ordered relationship with God, and that doesn't then translate into a proper ordering horizontally with the people around us and the world around us and the society around us, we're crazy. Like those two things yeah. are inseparable realities, both in the Old and New Testaments. Absolutely. The, ver- the vertical reconciliation with God is what we call evangelism. And the horizontal reconciliation we talk about with one another is what we call social justice. That's right. And they go together. You can't separate them. And that's what you find in the statement is basically saying, hey, we're here to reconcile people to their maker. And if we do that, then everything will be fine and we don't have to worry about the horizontal stuff. And that's just madness because an awful lot lot of the Bible is all about how does your horizontal or your vertical relationship with God play out in the horizontal reconciliation with one another. Yep. If if all you needed was the vertical piece, the Bible could probably be three or four pages (laughs) because everything else is the messiness of working that out horizontally. (laughs) I I just, I, I don't know how you, what Bible you read 
and come up with the idea that um, that the the social ordering of people isn't part and parcel of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, because they'll say it's an implication of the gospel, or right. it's an application of the gospel, and we want to say no, no. The gospel is the kingdom, which is the restoration of order. What the Old Testament called shalom. The future is not in heaven; it's on a renewed earth. And the pictures we get of that renewed earth are all shalom based, right? So, shalom is the right ordering of everything. Um, and and what Jesus has come to do, and it's so clear. I mean. You know, it, you, the first the first uh, issue that cropped up in the early church was around race, right? The mm-hmm. Hebrew widows were getting fed; the Greek widows weren't. Okay. Second issue that popped up was around race. Hey, the Greeks are coming in; they don't they're not circumcised like us. What the heck, man? I mean, and 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 so Paul writes a, a Galatians and Ephesians, which are these beautiful. I mean, you cannot read those books. Without the the sense that the dividing wall of hostility that separated people into other categories that has now been eradicated by the work of the cross, the okay. work of the cross wasn't just forgiveness. The work of the cross was that reconciliation too. So, Mike, let me be devil's advocate. Okay, pretend I'm one of the signers of the statement or the yes. authors of it or whatever. What I would say back to you is, I agree with you, Mike. That's that's all true and right, but it applies within the church. It applies to the community of the redeemed people of Christ. It doesn't say anything about engaging social change within the Roman Empire or changing the laws of in Washington, D.C., or working in the broader world to enact these kinds of ideas. It's only within the church. Oh, that's and, so good. And how, so how would you— You're right. I repent. I, 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 I repent. You're right. Um, well, first of all, God's heart for the church is that the church would be for the nations. So implicit in the understanding of church is the church does not exist for its own tribe, right? The church exists for those who aren't there yet. And clearly the New Testament is, is um, commanding the church to do right in the world so that people would be drawn to God the same way that Israel was. The posture towards the rest of the world was to be one of love and service, not condemnation and judgment. And, and so when, when like Peter uses, to, he talks about doing good deeds um, uh, so that people could see the works of God, like live such good lives among the pagans that they mm-hmm. would see your good deeds. That word is the word that uh, would have had the connotation of patronage, as you know, in, in Roman times, which are public works. Right. So here's a new water system. Here's a, so very much social justice issues. And they were to do them. Um, as a way of validating uh, the authenticity of the reality of the resurrection in their midst. I mean, so there was no, there was no dichotomy. So first I would say that's a total misunderstanding of the, of the function of the church. The function of the church is to be the place where horizontal things are being put back together and to model that so that the world would be drawn in. But secondly, we're explicitly commanded to do good deeds. I mean, over and over and over, and not just for the community of faith. You cannot say live good such live live such good lives among the pagans and, and not be clearer, right? I mean, that, that is as clear as you can get. Well, I, I agree with you, obviously, but I think the the other side would say. Oh, no, no, no. Living good lives among the pagans means just living personally moral lives. Yeah, but that's right? not that's not what the good that's not what the good deeds were in reference to. I know it isn't, but that's I think how it's received or interpreted by again that individualistic exact, contemporary that's the American issue. That's dualistic the issue. 
Yes. Yeah. Sky, you're yeah. absolutely right. Well, and here's the other part I don't understand. Like, I don't want to pigeonhole all the people who are advocates of the statement, but quite a few of them pride themselves on being highly Calvinistic or reformed in their theology. Hmm. And, Shocker. And what I don't get is one of the great pillars of the Protestant Reformation, and one of the things that Calvin and Luther and others preached and advocated all the time was a theology of vocation, a theology mm. of work mm-hmm. that said the individual believer is called by God to do good work in the world, and that work is worship to him, whether it's farming or, yeah, or law or medicine, whatever it might be. And, and yet when I read these statements or when I hear the, the preaching or, or, or read the content coming out of these circles, what I constantly hear is, this number one, this dualism that the spirit matters, but the material doesn't. And then this total failure to acknowledge that people have individual callings through which they are, they are mandated to bring glory to Christ. And in the ancient church, there probably weren't a ton of people in the church at Ephesus or in Galatia or in, or in Corinth who had authority over, over imperial law. Right, they they probably couldn't change the laws of the That's land right. the way the way that contemporary democracies allow us to do that. We we have influence. Some of us have more than others, depending on you know if we're elected officials. But if you if you are a responsible leader in a community, whether a mayor or a boss, a CEO, a judge, an elected official, a representative, a congressman, a senator, whatever, if you have that role and you are a follower of Jesus Christ you are to use that authority to bring flourishing and goodness to others. So yeah, you should be worried about unjust systems and, and oppression and, and the marginalized being unfairly abused or treated. Like that's part mm-hmm. of our vocation in the world. That's but good. the fact that people who claim Calvin and Luther and other reform figures as their heroes and yet deny the validity of those vocations, I find <laughs> absolutely stunning. That's good. That's that's exactly right, and, and you know, so you have you have that on a individual level. I have my individual vocation, but then you have that in the corporate level too, right? right. That that what's the role of the church in the world? And um, you cannot pick out one verse uh, that says the 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 sole job of the church in the world is to to issue statements and stand on street corners and just announce that Jesus is coming without any sort of engaging or interacting or work proving the fruit of that belief, right? Because the, the, the Israel was to be the evidence of how good it was to live under Yahweh's leadership. And so to a rebellious humanity, here, here's how good it can be when you submit yourself to the one true God. And the church exists in the same way. And the only way to show that is horizontally through justice. And so I, I, I just couldn't agree with you more, um, not only on the vocation individually, but, you know, but for us as a, as a community, that one of the things that really jumped out at me is um, I, I wondered if a, a white supremacist or a racist could sign this. And, okay. And, well, and, and, I, and I don't, I don't want to go too far with that, but, but um, when they, when they say, <laughs> so here's one quote, we deny that any obligation 
that does not arise from God's commandments can be legitimately imposed on Christians as a prescription for righteous living. Okay, so so if it's uh, right, okay. right, which which is hilarious because then they get into complementarianism, which is not a command of God. Uh, but anyway, we further deny the legitimacy, and this is really key, man. I we further deny the legitimacy of any charge of sin or necessity of repentance that does not arise from a violation of God's commandments. Okay, so they define God's commandments as the Ten Commandments. And and then they say, you can't tell us to repent if we individually haven't broken one of the commandments. All right. Which goes back to your earlier point. Well, okay. Obviously, I'm not going to disagree with the Ten Commandments, but (laughs) I think... I'm assuming the people behind this document are actually Christians. Right. And and Jesus takes a number of those 10 commandments in the Sermon on the Mount and expounds upon them and interprets them in a way that goes far deeper than behavior. Come on. Right? Come so on. So I'm I'm here to say I have never committed adultery as defined in the Mosaic 10 commandments. Yes. I have absolutely committed adultery as Jesus defines it in the Sermon on the Mount, which is to look lustfully upon a woman. Mm-hmm. And so according to the statement, I have not broken one of God's commandments as listed in the 10 commandments. Therefore, I have no need of repentance. But when I read Jesus, I absolutely have need of repentance. Yeah. So, you know, to think that merely the 10 commandments as, as given by Moses is the extent to which I am capable of sin is very pharisaical mm-hmm. no, and doesn't exactly right. and, and doesn't deal with the deeper root issue within my heart. And I mean, you, you can, you can obey the 10 commandments and be an utterly selfish human being. Correct. Right. Cause there's, there's yep. no command. There's no command in the 10 commandments that says you should be generous. True. Right. Yep. Or, or that you should give to the needy. It's not in the 10 commandments. And yet, I think that's something that was clearly spelled out in the New Testament that we are to be generous people. And so, I just just, just on the surface of it, the statement is an, is is ridiculous. It, and it a, absolutely and a, is, and a rejection of what Jesus Himself taught. It is. I mean, because they literally say right before that denial, we affirm that God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, and more succinctly summarized in the two great commandments of Jesus: love God, love neighbor. And manifested in Jesus Christ is the only standard of unchanging righteousness. Violation of that law is what constitutes sin. We deny that any obligation that does not arise from God's commandments can legitimately be imposed on Christians as a prescription for righteous living. And then we further deny the legitimacy of any charge of sin or call to repentance. So if I didn't do it, you can't tell me I'm a sinner and I need to repent, baby. So white people, there is no such thing as white privilege and stop freaking asking for forgiveness for stuff your your forefathers and mothers did. Um, okay, but fine. I'll, I'll actually agree with them on, on one level. If, if they believe that the, the full commands of God can be summarized by love God, love your neighbor, I agree. And that's pretty all-encompassing. <laughs> well, right? if, if, you, if you... Yeah. If sin can be defined as violation of either part of that, loving God or loving your neighbor, then 
what if I see a name, and this is the this is the Good Samaritan story, right? This exactly. is exactly the point of it. Is exactly the, the, the point. The, the 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 expert in the law was asking Jesus, well, then who's my neighbor? Who do I actually need to love? And Jesus' response is basically, the person you least want to love is the one you must love. And therefore, as a 21st century American, if I have a neighbor who is suffering in some way and I choose to do nothing about it, I am guilty of violating the, the great commandment. Yep. So they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot. If you, if you know you have neighbors who are African-American who are burdened by unjust systems or unfair treatment in the criminal justice system or whatever, and you choose to do nothing, which is exactly what you know, the Pharisee and the, and the Levite and the priest did in, those, in the story of the Good Samaritan, and then you are violating Jesus' command. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why they think they're getting off the hook with these statements. No, they, they do contradict themselves. Absolutely. See, and in, in even here, um, Article 8, we affirm the primary role of the church is to worship God, um, evangelize the lost, equip the saints. I mean, it, it, it's... Again, it's very narrow, and would we agree that yes, we worship, and yes, we preach, and yes, we teach sound doctrine, but there's this whole that there's there's something um, there's something completely missing from what the church is to be about and for. Well, even there, I think they're misusing the word church. Come on, because what they when for example, they're they're loosely referencing Ephesians four there and equipping the saints. Mm-hmm. That is not the job of the church. Come on. That's the job of leaders. Come on. Within the church. Yep. And that that's what Ephesians 4 says that Christ has given leaders. He's given apostles and prophets and evangelists, teachers and shepherds to equip the saints. And th- this is a common thing that's conflated a lot among many Christians is when we use the word church, what we often mean is the 501c3 institution with its mm. leaders and budgets and officers and buildings and programs. That's not the New Testament definition of the church. The church is the women, men, and children who've been redeemed by Jesus and are living in communion with him and one another. Right. That's the church. Yeah. So to say that the primary purpose of the church is equipping the saints and evangelizing, what they're really saying is that's what the leadership of the church should be doing. And, and I agree that, that that is a calling of leadership within the church, but the calling of the church, the people of God, it's yep. exactly what you said. It's to be a blessing to the world yep. and to display in their lives and in their work in the world the reality of Jesus' lordship and to give a foretaste of the perfection of the world that is yet to come. Come on! And, and so they're, they're just misdefining the church, period, in their, in their language. Well, here's so that they affir- the affirming was that statement about the church, but then listen to the denial and this. Oh, good Lord. We deny that political or social activism should be viewed as integral components of the gospel or primary to the mission of the church. I deny that denial. In, <laughs> uh, absolutely. First of all, the church is political. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, the church is a political entity. The church does political things. No question about it. Um, but how... But but social activism should be viewed as integral components of the gospel? I don't know, man. How does... How does Paul's, you know, putting together of Jews and Gentiles square into that? He says it's primary to the gospel and to the mission of the church. We are ambassadors of reconciliation, not just that God is no longer counting our sins against us, but that in Christ there's no longer 
any Jew or Greek, you know, male or female, slave or free. That is the one line. And there are a couple of others, but that's the one line where I go, wow, I really think they missed it there. Here's my question is if, if there's nothing social or political about the gospel, then why did the Jewish officials and the Romans crucify Jesus? <laughs> or persecute the early church. Yeah. Well, why, why were they threatened? Yeah. Well, and if it, if it was it's just a personal spirituality, then why did they kill them? And aren't, but aren't, oh, and then, and then the, the, the signers of this document themselves are engaging in political and social activism That's because the of the gospel. I, when I talked, we had a conversation with Russell Moore. I had a conversation with Russell Moore about this statement and, and his initial reaction, and you guys can listen to it on my podcast. Yeah. But, that's coming out uh, next week, right? Yeah. His initial reaction is they're not, they're, I don't know if he used the word hypocrites, but he said the people behind the statement are, are socially active because they're trying to fight abortion. Right. And, right. and many of them yes. are, are anti-gay marriage. And, you know, there's, there are issues that are political and social in dimension that they think the gospel calls us to right. organize and yes. rally against. Yes. Yes. So if they're really wanting to be consistent, <laughs> then they should say, yeah, you're right. We, we should drop all of these issues because they they're not about getting people to heaven. Yeah, how can we but, oppose abortion? How can how right. can we how can we oppose gay marriage? Right, and so do it in the name of the gospel. In this. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. I don't have it in front of me, but there's a part of the statement. Maybe you you have it where I they talk it. about how laws don't change people's hearts. Yeah, that was the second part of the denial. So okay, go go there. What does that say again? So we deny that political social activism should be viewed as integral components of the gospel or primary to the mission of the church. Though believers can and should. Utilize all lawful means that God has providentially established to have some effect on the laws of society. That's not true. So there is a place for civil disobedience in the scripture. We deny that these activities are either evidence of saving faith or constitute a central part of the church's mission. Ah, that's so wrong. So wrong. And then, and then. Uh, here's the statement you were referencing. We deny that laws or regulations possess any inherent power to change sinful hearts. I Okay. This is an argument that actually the, the place I encounter it most and not to open up a new can of worms, open. but where, you, where I hear this all the time on social media is from gun advocates. Ah. Right? They, they will say over and over and over again yep. that gun restrictions don't change people's hearts. And of course, guns don't kill people. People kill people and all that kind of stuff. And, and I agree. <laughs> I agree. Laws don't necessarily change people's hearts. A, a law that criminalizes drunk driving probably does not reduce the number of people who become intoxicated with alcohol. Mm -hmm. But that law and the enforcement of that law does make our streets safer. And having a teenager who's now driving, I feel better knowing that those laws are in place and that there are police officers enforcing those laws, even though it's probably not going to make our society more sober. Well, and, and, and these are the same people that quote Romans 13 right. uh, about, about the necessity to obey the laws when it comes to illegal immigration or you know, I mean, that's that's where it's like it's it's such a uh, um, such a mess of contradictions. It's hey, laws can't change human hearts, but they can save lives. Yes, 
That's the difference. Like I'm not going to change a murderer's heart by making murder illegal. Right. But I might save some people's lives. That matters. If laws can't change people's hearts, if this is just what it is, then why, then why fight for abortion laws? Right. I mean, this logic leads us to antinomianism. Oh, come on. You got to define that. So it's, it simply means against the law. Right. Or, you know, there was a, a heresy in early Christianity that basically said laws don't matter. Therefore, let's not have any. And you don't have to obey any of them. And that's a complete misreading of what Jesus himself said again in the Sermon on the Mount. He did not come to abolish the law, yep. but to fulfill it. He didn't say the Old Testament laws were bad. He was just saying they need to not just be external laws, as Jeremiah prophesied. They need to be laws written on our, our hearts. hearts. They, they need to be the from the inside out. So I agree in a part with the statement that yeah. a law in and of itself doesn't change people's hearts. But that alone does not mean pursuing laws or more righteous <laughs> laws or better laws is a bad Totally. Thing. And it contradicts the way they posture themselves in the world, so advocating put, for certain laws. To put some flesh on this, I, I, heard a, I heard a pastor not too long ago preaching, and he actually said, you know, rather than mobilizing politically, and he was specifically speaking about abortion, rather than mobilizing people around uh, pro-life issues or anti-abortion kind of legislation or Supreme Court justice, all that, what we really need to be doing is preaching the gospel. And if people just receive Jesus, the abortion issue would take care of itself. Mm. And I walked away from that sermon going, mm. put yourself 150 years ago, <laughs> right? You, you could have said the same thing about slavery. Come on, exactly. And said, you know what? We just need to preach the gospel. If we preach the gospel, these slave owners won't be slave owners anymore and it'll take care of itself. Yeah. Or, you know, or we go on down the list of, of civil social, rights. Civil rights. You go on down the list of issues. Immigration right now. Yeah. Um, on and on and on. And you go, you know what? There are some problems that are so uh, pernicious and evil that they need to be dealt with. We can't just sit around and wait for people's hearts to change. Yeah. They, we That's do right. need legislation. We do need government. We do need people in authority to restrain evil and, and seek the conditions that lead to human flourishing. Mm -hmm. But uh, this idea that man, and, and the part that really annoys me, and this is, I'm getting on my soapbox. Do it. The part that really annoys, when I hear a preacher say those kinds of things, what they are uh, indirectly saying is all of your vocations, you people out there in the congregation mm. don't ultimately matter, yeah. but mine does. Yep. I'm doing the so real work of the gospel. I'm doing the real work. And if you guys, if you're in government or law or education or science, or you name your field, if you're in that area, that's too bad. You missed an opportunity to, to really be important. But just use your lunch break to preach the gospel to people because then that matters. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, where would we be as a world if every Christian decided that their particular gifts and calling in the world didn't matter? <laughs> but that's, a, and it's a very, it's, 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 it's an insulting thing for a pastor to say where they're putting their own calling high above everyone else's and yeah. diminishing yeah. what God himself has called his people to do in the world. Oh. I find, I find it to just be the, the, uh, the pinnacle of arrogance oh, to say such so, a thing. That's so good. Well, and speaking of arrogance, um, <laughs> let me get to the culture statement. <laughs> oh yeah. This is the one that yeah. I saw people freaking out about on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
Again, you could be a white supremacist and sign off on this particular one. We affirm that some cultures operate on assumptions that are, uh, that are inherently better than those of other cultures because of the biblical truths that inform those worldviews that have produced these distinct assumptions. Those elements of a given culture that reflect divine revelation should be celebrated and promoted. But the various cultures out of which we have been called all have features that are worldly and sinful, and therefore those sinful features should be repudiated for the honor of Christ. Um, we affirm that whatever evil influences to which we've been subjected via our culture can be and must be overcome through conversion and the training of both heart and mind through biblical truth. All right, so there you go. This raised a, a bit of a kerfuffle um, as an understatement that the, the, first of all, the word better is always going to throw people off when you're, when you're right. talking cultures. Um, because of the biblical truths that inform those worldviews. Now, here's what's, here's what's fascinating to me, Sky. Um, God's hearts for the nations, absolutely. There is, a, there is such a thing as common grace, and, and, um, and the Imago Dei is still true in, in human persons, so that, that human societies resemble each other to some degree um, or another, uh, regardless of where they're found. I just find it fascinating when uh, a group of um, white American males initially um, gets to determine what views or what biblical views are the most important to be held. Right, right. So, so we, we, we make the world run on war through our weapons manufacturing. We, of course, um, are uh, unbelievably ruthless when it comes to um, uh, indoctrinating people into Western ideas and cultures through media and through Hollywood. We are, we, we are the most blessed people in the history of the nations who, does, who do, do nothing more than just spend their money on how to be more blessed. I mean, you could, you know, the pride of America, the lust of America, the greed of America, the military force of America. I mean, I don't know if I'm a, if I'm a collectivist culture in sub-Saharan Africa, and of course we got our evil there. We got witch doctors, we have you know ritual uh, prostitution, uh, but which are the greater sins, right? Which which cultural assumptions are best uh, modeled after the Bible? The imperial assumptions of American uh, power or the collectivist assumptions of man? I'm just trying to eke out a living, live a quiet life, and you know die with my ancestors. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think it's absolutely, absolutely crazy because they won't say, obviously, that, that our culture is better, but that's clearly what they well, mean. Well, I think what, what bothered me most about this section, everything you said I totally agree with. What, what bothered me most is I was a history major as an undergrad. I still read a lot of history. I love it. But this argument that they're making is precisely the argument that the antebellum South made about their culture. Hmm. You know, when the civil war was, was beginning to get, when we were moving toward the civil war in the 1850s, or even going all the way back to the, to the 1700s, when there was a, a tension between the North and the South, between the slave States and the free States in the framing of the constitution and all those debates of the founding generation, what came up over and over and over again from Southerners was, we we are protecting our Christian values. We are protecting our, our Christian way of life. And of course, they had all these biblical justifications for the supremacy of, 
of European uh, races over <laughs> and above African races. And, all. and in their minds, they were merely defending the God-ordained ordering Order. of the, of That's the right. world. That's and right. and those, those pagan heathen northerners were trying to impose upon us their ungodly way of life. And so, like, there's nothing about what they argue in the statement that a Southerner in 1850 wouldn't say amen to. Yeah. And and you go on through a history of other groups that have done the same thing. Now, that all that, we said all that, there is a degree to which I agree with their statement. Like, mm-hmm. I think we would all agree that Nazi Germany and the values of that culture are antithetical to scripture and bad. Yeah. And that, and that, and worse than what we've embraced. Right, right. Worse than what we embrace, or to use a contemporary example, that the culture of Nazi Germany was more evil than the culture of mid-20th century Great Britain. Nice. And yeah, okay, that's easy to say the Nazis are bad, although some people in our world today have a hard time saying Nazis are bad. Most of us <laughs> don't, right? Yeah. But what gets, what gets weird is what I want to ask the writers of this statement is, okay, which cultures today do you think are inherently better? Right. And which ones are inherently worse? Rather than taking the more nuanced approach of saying, you know what, every culture, because of common grace, has things about it which are consistent with the character of God and his kingdom. And every culture, because of the pervasiveness of sin and depravity of sin, has things about it which are out of step with God's character and his kingdom. And because of, and that's true, by the way, of every individual, not yep. just every culture, Amen. every individual. Yep. And therefore, we must all be humble before God and pray for the grace and the strength to be transformed more and more individually and collectively into the people and the cultures that he wants us to be. Oh, Right? And that, that process of personal transformation we call sanctification and that process of collective transformation is what we call social justice. <laughs> so... Oh. Right? That, so this idea that like there's this ranking of cultures yeah from from godly to ungodly yeah is apparently what they're holding to all they're not sharing is where they think different cultures are on that spectrum oh they're sharing they're sharing it. <laughs> i mean they they just would say they're not sharing it but clearly clearly and that's why i went to list you know the fault the the flaws of of the way we've come to greatness as a country and as a culture and the way that we see ourselves right i mean it's you know, I, I, I love what you said. It's, it's, they're, they're both. And, and as people who live in empire, we have to be even be more cautious um, about what it is that we affirm in culture and what it is that we reject. Um, because so much of our uh, assumptions about the way the world works are colored by, of course, the manifest destiny that was ours as Americans, for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. So, Sky, let me ask you one last question. I've got to go pick up my son from school. Man, this is such good stuff, bro. I love, just love your thinking, love your gracious way of framing these things. Um, what is the proper relationship between social justice and the gospel? Uh, I, well, I, I would focus on that word I mentioned earlier, which is just justice or yep. righteousness. They're the yep. same word again. And we are called to righteousness and that right ordering of relationship. And it, personally, we need to be properly ordered in relationship with our creator, which happens through faith in Jesus Christ and accepting his atonement for our sins, his resurrection, his lordship, 
and living in communion with him. And of course, the beginning of that process is what we call evangelism. But righteousness extends then to right living in the world. And this is where I think uh, both the conservative and liberal ends of the church make mistakes. The conservative end says, you need to be in right relationship with God. And that social justice stuff is, is kind of secondary or it's an implication or it's down the line. The left liberal side of the church says, we need to fix what's broken in society. But this whole relationship with God thing, you know, yeah. that's, not, that's not relevant. The, the world's broken, but I'm not. And the conservatives say, you're broken, but the world's not. Like, you don't have to fix that. And, and when you read the scriptures, it clearly indicates, I'm broken. The world is broken. I need to be fixed. The world needs to be fixed. And as I'm brought into right relationship with God, he employs me in his work That's of right. fixing the world around exactly. me. Exactly. And I do and I do that arm in arm with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I may even do that arm in arm with people who aren't my brothers and sisters in Christ. What? If 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 they're working toward goals which are consistent with the kingdom of God. Oh my goodness. So God, that's that's a can of worms right there, buddy. But I don't I just I think you have to have the image of the cross in your mind, the vertical and the horizontal. If you take away either one of those, you don't have a cross anymore. Come on. And and, and that's what we're called to, a, a unified vision. And this is not this is not a crazy idea. This is what the majority of Christians throughout history and throughout the world today have always affirmed and believed. Yeah. It's a uniquely American uh, problem that we've separated them. And if I if I could refer people to a different document than this one that yeah. I think does it really well, it's 1974, the Lausanne Statement hmm. on uh, that Billy Graham and John Stott and a bunch of others came. They wrestled with this whole issue of social justice and evangelism. Hmm. And that statement, I think, beautifully presents a unified vision of the mission of God's people in the world. Oh, and, and it was a global statement from many different voices from around the world. And I think it helped move the Americans in the room beyond their, their unique problem over all this. Go read the Lausanne Statement. It's wonderful. It's holistic. It's biblical. And it doesn't get caught up in this craziness that is the American dichotomy between the horizontal and the vertical. Good job, man. Excellent. I, have you ever read Tim Keller's Generous Justice? That was a, I, I have not, but I've heard him talk on it a number of times. Yeah, I really found that helpful. He did a, he did a really, really good job with it, I think. Um, all right, my friend. Thank you for your time. I'm so grateful. And, it, and it's funny. I'm trying to figure out a, a way to disagree with you to create some sort of <laughs> conflict, but there's just nothing. You know what, you and you and I need to spend some time not on a recorded podcast, figuring out something that we disagree on, oh. and then hit the record button and yes. see, see where it goes. Yes. Oh, Sky, I so appreciate you, man. Thanks for your time. Um, and to those of you tuning in the show, thank you as always for listening and allowing us to play a, a small part in your life. You know, Donald Trump warned the evangelicals that unless you know, they came out to vote and, and if, if Trump were defeated, then there would be violence. Uh, I just want to warn you, unless you've liked, subscribed and, and <laughs> um, given to Patreon, um, uh, there will be violence. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, Sky, thank you, my friend and uh, my good brothers and sisters. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Bye. <laughs>